welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist and life coach with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hi, Terry. Hello, Anita. So an article in Psychology Today titled, When Doctors Are at Risk for Suicide, reports that roughly half of U.S. physicians surveyed believe they have met the criteria for mental illness in the past, but did not seek treatment. The reason? Primarily stigma. And research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association found that stigma attached to mental illness is greater among medical trainees and physicians than in the general population. In fact, studies show that 50% of doctors are less likely to work with a colleague who has a history of depression or an anxiety disorder, with over 4 in 10 admitting to thinking less of such a colleague. A few years back, we found someone with a unique vantage point to discuss this reality from both sides. Dr. Michael Weinstein, an acute care trauma surgeon who lives with depression and has been treated in a psychiatric hospital, a surgeon patient, as he calls himself. Here now is Dr. Weinstein giving his voice to depression. So we first learned of today's guest in the New England Journal of Medicine. We're not going to pretend to be regular readers, but when a doctor writes a first-person essay called Out of the Straitjacket, it catches our attention. So we reached out. Will you start by just introducing yourself? Yeah, so Michael, Michael, I guess you want me to formally kind of say something here. Sure, go for it. <laughs> um, so it's, it is Michael Weinstein. Um, um, in Philadelphia, I've been in Philadelphia for a long time, and uh, I'm a physician. Um, I've been a surgeon for a long time. Um, actually, right now, I'm kind of taking time uh, away and uh, working to figure out what's really next for me and what's going to be most meaningful and fulfilling uh, and support my uh, mental health as much as possible. In Dr. Weinstein's essay, he wrote that from the outside, he appeared to have it all a surgeon with leadership promise, earning more than he'd ever expected, an amazing wife, two great kids. But in reality, he says he was just enduring life. He wrote, quote, I'd heard of burnout, but didn't really comprehend it. And though I had mental illness, I still saw it as a weakness, a personal fault. I remember early in my career hearing of a colleague who'd taken a leave of absence for a nervous breakdown. I joked about it, said he was weak. Now it's my turn. There are so many things I want to ask you. So if a doctor who's gone through medical school and had all the training can see mental illness when he experiences it as a personal failing, as a weakness, is this all 
Mm-hmm. I, I hate to use a word like indictment, but of the education you got. I mean, shouldn't doctors be coming out understanding that this is a real illness and the symptoms of it and the, the, the triggers and the risk factors and then a little bit of empathy maybe, please? So if it, if there's a couple layers to this question. Yes, there were. That's because I rambled. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just, uh, as I'm just trying to piece together, um, you, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't ramble at all. Um, one, there, there are some serious problems with medical education, with the practice of medicine, with our healthcare system. <laughs> um, and one evidence of that is, uh, you know, that when people come to medical school and you look at rates of, um, depression, they're pretty much on par with the general population. Within a couple years of medical school, especially when they get to their clinical years, when they start spending time in hospitals and with senior doctors, those rates start to increase. And then when they enter their training or internship and residency, those rates increase further. Weinstein concludes there is clearly something about that process that needs to be changed in major ways. We had somewhat of a medical education revolution back, I think, Oh, maybe even almost 100 years ago now. We need a major revolution <laughs> to change the way in which we're educating. And there are some positive changes, um, and there's definitely a focus on that now. But um, we need a lot. There's a lot more work to be done. The second part of my question addressed the need for the medical community to have understanding and empathy regarding mental illness. All of my colleagues probably would describe me as a compassionate and empathic physician. And I can extend that compassion and empathy to others quite well. Um, and in fact, you know, what a lot of folks are saying is that the people that are most empathic and most compassionate are probably at the highest risk of, um, of their having their own episodes of burnout and depression. Um, and many of us, I know I still do, right? By, um, finding that self-compassion um, and that self-empathy challenging because it's in some ways, you know, whether it's part of medical education or not, or whether it's part of anyone's upbringing, you know, you, you learn to want to care for others and want to be of service to others um, without necessarily thinking about how you're being of best service to yourself. So I, you know, teaching that self-compassion, teaching self-awareness, um, to me, the practice of mindfulness really needs to be integrated from the very beginning of medical education um, or for anyone really who's going to be providing care to others, whose um, work is of service to others, as most of us really are. But uh, especially so in the, in the healthcare system, because you're, you're attending to other people's suffering on a routine basis. So one of the lines in your article You said, colleagues were trying to help you, but you were unreceptive to their efforts. And then the very next line, you said, I was trying to get help in many ways, but nothing seemed to be working. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I tried to rewrite that several times (laughs) as carefully as possible as well. Um, I think in some ways what I was trying to say between the lines perhaps is that I think people recognized that I was suffering and had no idea how to help. You know, I, I think, unfortunately, because because of well, a lot of different reasons, people don't necessarily know what to say, what to ask, how to listen, how to be supportive. 
Um, and in many ways, uh, I think many times our default is actually to be avoidant um, of these conversations, at least in my profession. And there's that other internal part of the equation. And then, uh, in many ways, I wasn't particularly receptive, um, even for you know small gestures of help, um, because I thought I wasn't worthy. Um, I thought I was not. Uh, it was my issue. It was my failure. It was my problem, and that I, um, I, in many ways, one of my many faults <laughs> uh, is is not wanting to ask for help is to, is to feeling like I can, I should be able to take care of all of this on my own. Um, uh, you know, uh, in many ways in my, in my workplace, my self-criticism comes out, how come I can't take care of all of this on my own? How come I can't, you know, change the culture of such and such of, you know, in my intensive care unit, how come I can't fix that on my own? And so I, in some ways it was both, right? So it was, it was that people don't necessarily know how to simply, ask how people are doing and want to stop and listen and just honor someone else's suffering. Um, and you know, you know, there's a lot of different ways to potentially do that and, and be helpful to another person, simply asking what would be most helpful instead of maybe sometimes jumping to giving advice. Um, and, but there was another part of me that, that just really didn't want help. So I was in the next sentence I was, looking for help right so i was trying to see different i was seeing different uh therapists psychiatrists um i was reading different things to try and find again my, I, I can figure this out i can find my own solutions but nothing really nothing was nothing i could find was was helping mm -hmm. if you were an accountant or an engineer or you yeah. know a, a whatever saying in my profession People right. tend to be avoidant of these conversations. The fact that you're a doctor right. and we were talking about the medical profession kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I know. Of all of the professions, I would want the medical profession to be least avoidant. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I don't know, right? I don't really know other professions. I, I may certainly imagine, you know, much, much in our, especially in our Western society, uh, many people are avoiding about these conversations yeah. to begin with. Absolutely. And that's what we are here working to change, right? right. Um, you know, there, there may at times be folks who are better equipped in, in medicine to do this and to, and to, to, to help others. And, um, you know, I, I know in some ways I was one of those, right? So I was really good at helping mm -hmm. folks who were going through difficult times. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think especially in my world of surgery, but a lot of in, in, in for, for physicians, especially, I think there's this notion that we need to be know it all, um, be, um, you know, strong and not susceptible to these types of things. And that even asking another physician about that or checking in on another physician, how they're doing is like asking if they're weak, you know? Um, so, so it's it's um yeah it's kind of it, you you're right you would you would hope that the that physicians could treat each other as well as they treat their patients mm -hmm. not that we all always treat our patients you know yeah. as best as we can either but um hmm. but uh that that's not the environment that I found I always say that <laughs> 
So this episode focused on Dr. Weinstein as a surgeon. Next week, Michael tells the personal story of his experience with depression, including his doctor in control to patient losing control in a psychiatric hospital. So, Terry, I could not help but think back to my own training program when when I was listening to Dr. Weinstein's experience. And I remember being in this clinical psychology graduate program that was modeled after medical school training. And we were working 80 to 100 hour weeks, a completely non-sustainable pace. Um, You know, students' marriages were falling apart, physical health issues mental health issues, the stress was just unreal. And I can remember at the time thinking, this is not right. We're supposed to be learning what a healthy, balanced life is and and, and how important self-care is for preventing burnout and for good mental health. And we're, we're going to be going through five plus years of this horrendously stressful, almost like a hazing kind of experience. And I just thought, this is this is this is so hypocritical. Yes. We how how is it we're going to be able to teach people how to take care of themselves when you're telling us what it should look like but you're not allowing us to actually have that experience while we're while we're learning it. It just didn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, but it maybe makes more sense of the fact that so many people believe that the care they get is substandard and there's a million reasons for that too, but the whole thing. I mean, how how, 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 you know, physician heal thyself, that whole thing is, I, this, this, every time I hear Dr. Weinstein and, and, and reread his article, I'm not, this isn't new. It's not the first time I've heard it, but it's the first time I've heard it in such a raw form from a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you just sort of get indoctrinated with these messages of, um, this is reasonable. You should be able to do this. If you can't, there's something wrong with you. All the kinds of things that we really don't want people to think, we want to be models for not stigmatizing, reaching out for help. And yet, you know, to to do that in some of these programs would absolutely jeopardize your ability to to function in them. And we already know that there's stigma attached, that there's a, um, a lessening of your reputation or the respect that people have for you if you speak out about that. So... We do need top down. We need from the top down things to be different. And I hope that they are. I hope that things have somehow changed at least a little bit for the better, you know, since I was in school. But I just remember what a surreal experience that was of trying to hold on to a shred of health in a program that was supposed to be teaching me what health was and being able to promote health, mental health for other people. Like I said, just did not make sense there. And it's not subtle. So it's not like some of you gleaned or, or you were able to, you know, connect these dots. Everybody in everybody in it knows that it's not healthy and not functioning. And yet, right, it's been that way for a really mm-hmm. long time. I tried so many times and I've talked with other professionals about, you know, why do you think it was this way? And, you know, one of the answers that was thrown out was, you know, it's it's very much like the experience of being in in boot camp so that you can train soldiers to not panic in crisis situations. So it has to be, you know, pretty rigorous and, and, and demanding. But 
you know, five years of that versus, you know, a few weeks of boot camp, that's, that's more than just the, the, you know, we, we want to prepare you to be able to handle crises and emergencies mm-hmm. and not, you know, not fall apart under, under pressure. And it also just, that's not, that's not what it's going to be like, an, like on a day to day basis working as a psychologist where you would need to function at 80 to 100 hour work weeks. It just, the model doesn't yeah. fit. Mm-mm. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the reality of, of, how am I going to learn how to take care of myself, prevent compassion fatigue and burnout um, to, mm-hmm. to run us through that kind of, of training? The training was, was really excellent, but it wasn't healthy. And I don't care how mentally, I'm just going to go with mentally versus the whole bod here, um, how mentally just strong and perfect you are. <laughs> if you don't sleep, I mean, Again, we'll take the stress out and everything else. Just if you don't sleep mm-hmm. for extended periods of time, that doesn't benefit. No one benefits. I mean, no. there isn't a you know, as I say, that the, the the strongest person still needs to sleep. <laughs> and the idea that we are reliant on all of these very tired, stressed people for our care mm-hmm. um, really explains a lot. Yeah, I don't understand why it has to be like a hazing. It doesn't. I really don't think it does. I think there might be some some use for for that in you know some some benefit to that, um, just to make sure you know that a person really wants to work, for example, in you know um, as a trauma surgeon or or something like that. But the how long it goes on and the effect that it has on individuals and their relationships and their families and their their mental health and physical health mm-hmm. that's not good. That that should be changed. That needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. So this week, we are obviously talking about and focusing on Dr. Weinstein and the medical institution. Next week, it's really his personal story. It is a very different focus. And he dealt with both. He he revealed both in the YouTube video we'll be linking to and wrote about it in the article. So it was a incredibly brave and revealing. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, we all know this is nonsense. It's another thing to say, let me tell you what happened to me, really, really personally and in detail. And it is, in a word, horrific. You'd think if anybody was going to get a little extra compassion and treatment, it might be another doctor. So I, I find that mm-hmm. part of his story, um, well, I'll just say interesting, but that's not really how I feel about it. I find mm-hmm. it just so sad and so pathetic. So we will be back next yeah. week yeah. with that part of Dr. Weinstein's story. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen. 